0: What we're going to talk about today is that the disobedience of the people is going to result in kind of a reverse makeup. The before and the after are not going to be something they would like. A structure dedicated to God meant nothing if the people themselves weren't dedicated to being God's people. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about. Now, if you'll look at chapter 7, between the last verse of what we looked at last week and the first verse of what we're going to deal with today, we're going to start with verse 12 today, but look at verse 11. We ended with 10 last week. Here's verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. So you would think, Uh, He's accomplished this. His accomplishment was impressive, uh, big time impressive. Uh, We read, we finished last time with saying when all this got done, the people were joyful. They were glad. They were happy that this had been completed. And of course, they had been participating in two weeks of celebration of that. Um, Perhaps King Solomon would be tempted to just kind of rest on his loyals. Uh, laurels. Maybe maybe at that point he would have said to himself, okay, job done. I need to take some time off. Perhaps God desired far more from Solomon and from the people than just the construction of a building. God wanted what he's always wanted from God's people, obedience, to follow him, to follow his lead. So we're going to pick up in verse 12 at the end of this construction, and we're going to read a little bit uh, and get some insight into how God answered you. Remember, we studied for parts of two weeks. We studied God's. Uh, we studied Solomon's prayer to God. We're going to we're going to see God's answer to that. Okay, Steve, would you start at verse 12 and read down through 18? Okay, God is going to answer Solomon's dedicatory prayer. Now, I want you to go back with me just for a minute. Flip back two or three pages to chapter one. And if you remember, we studied this kind of a little bit at the beginning of this this, uh, three or four lessons or so. We talked about Solomon's original prayer. Now, what I think is interesting about this is God appeared to Solomon that time in chapter one at night. He appears to him again this time in chapter seven at night this will be the second time god has come to him at night um and he is going to ask if you remember look at verse 7 in uh, chapter 1 god is in that in that in that night god appeared to solomon asking him ask what i shall give you and if you look at verse 10 then we can remember what what solomon asked for give me wisdom and knowledge that i may go out and come in before this people who can rule a this great people of yours, and God said to Solomon, verse eleven: Because you had this in mind, and didn't ask for riches, wealth or honor, or life of those who hate, you, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for a long life yourself, but you've asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I made king. So He grants that, and then gives him lots of other stuff too. Remember? Okay. So that was kind of the first time God appeared to Solomon and said, "What? What would you like?" And he asked for. Primarily, wisdom to lead. Now, in that case, God answered his prayer with what he asked for and then some. In this case, okay, Solomon asked for some things and God is going to answer his request. But the one answer that we're going to look at in verse 12 that wasn't in Solomon's request was also granted. What I want you to catch here is that God always hears you when you pray. He doesn't always answer exactly like you ask him. Okay, now look back at verse 12. What did God say he's going to do in response to Solomon's prayer? He's going to make the temple a place Of sacrifice that's not what Solomon actually or exactly at least asked for he asked for him to keep his eye on the temple for him to hear the prayers from the temple he didn't say anything about sacrifice but God says this temple is going to be the place of sacrifice okay so what I want you to catch here and continue can, can you, can you to think about when you think about this passage is God heard Solomon's prayer and he answered him generally in kind like he did in chapter one. But the most important part of the answer to God's prayer was something Solomon didn't even ask for. As, in your prayer time, uh, let's say it's a prayer season. You've been praying about something for a long, long time. Has God ever redirected you From what you were asking about. Happens to me all the time. You know, I love you, pal. You're doing great. Uh, Thanks for bringing this to me. But you know what? Instead of this, why don't we do this? Isn't that interesting? Doesn't mean God didn't love you because he doesn't say, sure, I'm your, um, you know, I'm your genie in the bottle. God just never treats me that way. Sometimes, in fact, he says, okay, I love you, but I got a better idea. And I've got to go with that because he's smarter than me. And he knows the details better than I do. That's what's happening here in verse 12. Look at verse 13. There's a warning that begins right here in verse 13 and following. He's going to talk about three desperate negatives that could come if, um, if, The people don't obey, okay? Catch them here real quick. They are um, drought. Um, Drought is one. A locust swarm is another one. Both of those, by the way, could lead to famine, which is one of the scariest things ever in, in ancient times, famine. One of the things they worried about most. The third one was what? Plague, which uh, is probably involves some kind of a medical issue or something like that. Okay, he warns them against these um, three negatives that that um, that may happen if they don't obey. But here's the tricky part, and I, what I'm gonna what I'm gonna say is use the word it. How'd you read my mind, Jeffy? What's the it, okay, that you don't like in your life? The tricky part of this is determining when is the it God's discipline, as it is here, beginning with verse 13. God says, if you don't, then I'll have to, okay? And when is the it the result of natural things? What I want you to know is, in both of those, God has sovereignty and control. Even if it's something natural, something God didn't cause, something God wouldn't bring on you, do you you understand that God is still able? And I still need to ask him. So the tricky part is kind of figuring, okay, am I being disciplined here? Because of something I have done, which is what he's implying, Or is it some kind of a natural thing? I think it's very very important, especially in our day, to recognize. You notice the mainstream media doesn't want you to think about God unless there's some horrible thing going on, and then he gets the blame. If there's anything good going on, he never gets the credit. Okay? You and I know better. Look at verse fourteen. But he gives them here, beginning of verse fourteen. He gives them uh, a, a source of hope. Now, maybe you're like me, and you have to be reminded occasionally that that this I love. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Maybe you were taught to to quote it, or maybe as as I did back. I can't tell you how far long ago um, somebody set. Um, a, a musical setting of "If" my, called If My People. I could I could hum it in my brain right now. Uh, if my people which are called by my name will hum it. And it kind of helps me remember this song. Uh, it helps me remember this verse. But maybe you were like me and didn't know the context of it was here after the dedication of the temple. So he says, all these things are come, going to come on you, but if you will, some better things will come. So he mentions here, Four conditions for hope. This is really important. The first one is humbling themselves. What does that mean? What does it mean to humble myself before God? Kind of important. Do I? I've got to get myself out of the way. In particular, what I want you to think about, when you think about humbling yourself before God it's admitting that you need his help. there's so many of us that get in a jam failing to admit I need God's help. when Jake was five, he was constantly getting his tennis shoes tied in a knot laces. If he tried to fix that, it was always worse. There were times when I had to cut the laces out of his sneakers because uh, you know... I certainly couldn't get the knot out. I'm not really sure if God could get the knot out, okay? So we start over. <laughs> would it have been better if right when the knot occurred, if he brought it to me and said, hey, Dad, can you get this knot? Sure. It would have been a lot easier. But I tried to fix it first. I didn't acknowledge. I didn't humble myself enough to say, Lord, this has got to be yours because I can't fix it. Humble themselves. Second, praying. Obviously a must. If my people, who are called by name, will humble themselves and pray. And then the third one is kind of beautiful, and as it is a little tricky, to seek my face. It's the idea here, a desire for a face-to-face, close relationship with God. Now, now here's another passage that you and I have kind of memorized and become popularized, especially in the last 20 or 30 years or so. Uh, It's Jeremiah 29, 11, and 12, okay? that that wonderful promise that God will lead you, God will direct you. You may stop if you memorize those and forget verse 13, which says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. The idea there, the implication there, as it is here, is um, this idea that I desire A face-to-face, close relationship with God. A close relationship. So those who humble themselves, those who pray, and those who want a close relationship with me. We could spend all day right here on this verse, couldn't we? And fourth then, and it couldn't be more critical. The other three, the other three are useless without the fourth. Humbling and praying and seeking God's face, are useless without the turn. Without the turn. Words have to be followed by action. We've talked about this for probably 14 weeks. The idea of not only am I going to seek his face, but I'm going to be willing to make an about face in the way I'm living my life. I'm going to be willing for God to say, you need to turn around and face me and I do it. Okay, so to turn around, that kind of implies the idea of repentance. So in verse 15, the Lord then announces his intention. What is it? Verse 15. What's he going to do? I'm going to look and listen. I'm going to, for what... Go back with me, because you'll remember this, I think, 640. So just back one page. Now, oh, God, I pray. Oh, my God, I pray. Let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Does God answer that prayer in spades? Right? I'm going to listen. I'm going to watch. I'm going to keep my eyes on it. I'm going to listen to the prayers that emanate from this place. Sure, he answers prayer. The question that I've got to ask here, and it's interesting to me that if I compare chapter six with chapter seven and compare where Solomon's praying that prayer to where God says, I will do this because you asked for it. One of the things I've I've kind of had to deal with a little bit in my own thoughts about this is, does God want to answer prayer? And I think the only answer is yes. Yeah, he does. He wants to bless me. He wants to help me. He wants to lead me. He wants to direct me. He wants to heal me. So, what i got to be careful of is when I pray to him, not to pray to him as if he doesn't want to answer me. You ever been caught in that spot? I have. He loves me. He wants to be good to me. He wants to bless me, but he always knows better. So, Verse 16, he promises, God promises that he will identify with this place. And he uses a word here, consecration, which is a word um, that you don't hear a lot in in modern language, but but the idea here is, is good and biblical. It's the idea, I have chosen and consecrated, I've set this house apart that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. So the idea is he's going to put his name there. He's going to set it apart for himself only, and that's really, really important. And he says it's going to be perpetually or forever, your Bible may say, but I've got to, I got to help, help you catch this. That forever is not without condition. And the condition goes on. He's going to kind of deal with it. Now he's going to go from that spot of talking about the place to focusing on the king himself. Notice he begins verse 17 with, as for you. <laughs> uh, isn't it funny when you're reading in your in your uh, quiet time, reading the Bible in your quiet time, and you're thinking about, uh, he's talking about some thing, and you think, well, yeah, God, go get him. And then all of a sudden there's something that jumps off the page at you when you're reading the scriptures, and God says, Now, as for you, (laughs) oh, okay, talk to me. That's the appropriate response. As for you, so he he focuses the attention on the king himself, and it's really important what he has to say to him here. As for you, here's what you're supposed to do. And he begins to talk about, uh, in verse 17 here, he begins to talk about the faithfulness of David. Walk before me as your father David walked. Now, I got to ask the question how faithful was David? This is a tricky question because he's talking about faith and faithfulness. So, how, tr- how faithful was David, Solomon's father? Good. Pretty good. Was David perfect? He may have sinned, but it had nothing to do with Did you hear the theologian Ellie Schneider over here? That was good, Ellie. Say it again. He, he that had nothing to do with his relationship with God. Interesting. It had an oblique relationship with it, yes. But one of the things you got to catch about David that causes him to be uh, considered a hero, even in Acts 13 when still there in the scriptures that he's being called a man after God's own heart. The issue of faithfulness in David's life wasn't that he Never sinned. You and I know that that is reported in, in, in black and white, in, certainly in uh, 2 Samuel. We don't like it. We love David. We love the fact that he wrote most of the Psalms and set up all this stuff, made the plans for the temple. We don't like to read the chapters where David um, sins with Bathsheba, um, is implicit in a murder, you know, all that stuff. We don't want to even talk about that, but we know it's there, so we can't forget forget it. But let me tell you one thing David never did. He never turned his back on his father. I don't pretend to understand that, except I know that David never built an altar to or worshiped another God, and he had lots of opportunities to. Never did it. He did a lot of other things that he wasn't proud of and that you and I aren't proud of. But he never turned his back on belief, faith in the Lord God. You read Psalm 51. Marty used it in his sermon last week. He praised this wonderful, uh, contrite uh, prayer of confession over the Bathsheba incident. Also in Psalm 33. He was faithful in the object of his faith and worship. He never got that mixed up. There is one, and I know him. And even though I've goofed up, he still loves me. Now, the issue is in verse 7, 17 and 18, in, in verse Look at verse 18 for just a second. I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man to be your ruler in Israel. David's promise can be Solomon's as well if he will walk in the way his father did. But verse 19 begins with a really important three-letter word, but. Somebody go, John, would you go to verse 19 and read down through 22? 22. is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? The people will answer, Because they have forgotten, they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt, and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why He brought all this disaster. Does this get sour quickly to you or not? It does to me. Ellie, in a minute, would you go to Matthew 10 and read verse 32 and 33? I know that's in your phone. <laughs> Cause I, I sit by in Bible study. I know your phone's got all kinds of scripture in it. Okay. Um, all right. That's um, the idea here is the king. Okay, we said David's promise can be Solomon's as well. But the king is going to have to be responsible to be the example. Can I tell you something that's kind of out of whack these days? God says it here. My words are not his. If you're going to lead, lead. This almost brings it, it it does, it brings a lump to my throat. If you're going to lead, then lead. If you're going to lead, lead. And the most important thing he needs to lead in is in faithfulness to the Lord God, worship of the Lord God. And the truth is, uh, God defines faithful in these next few verses that John just read, defines faithful as remembering not to turn your back on the only God and worshiping something that's less. Being faithful to that commitment that faith and not defying uh, the number one commandment in the Big Ten. Don't have any other gods before me. Just don't do it. David didn't. Solomon did. You read those stories? He began to make political alliances and had unholy marriages. And if it only stopped there, it would have been okay. But because of the alliances and the marriages, he began to erect holy places. I don't even want to call them holy places. Shrines to other deities, and he went with his other families to worship with them. What you need to know is that the promise that's Coming on here in verse 20 is the outcome that is talked about, the kingdom will be ripped partially from your your hands, took only one generation to take place. That is sobering to me. It took only one generation for King Rehoboam to lose over half the kingdom. Who is King Rehoboam? He is Solomon's son. Northern ten tribes rebel. There's a brutal civil war. They are never back in the fold. So it begins to unravel. The promises begin to unravel. Only one generation later. Only one leader later. Does that scare you like it does me? And this whole thing, beginning with verse 5, begins with, but if... I'm going to do this for you, but if if you decide you're going to worship somebody else, I can't do this anymore. Look at verse 21. Oh, John, I want you to read. Uh, I'm sorry. Who got it? Was it John? Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Who got that? Sorry. This, I, I forgot you and your special Bible there. Sorry. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before me, I will also confess him before my father. Me me, I also him my Do you have a red letter phone? It's in red. Yep. What does that mean? It's, it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> it means Jesus said it, which makes it the most important words, those words in red that have ever been spoken or written. And he basically says, if you'll acknowledge me, if you'll, if you'll uh, confess me before men, I'll confess you when you get to heaven before my father. If you fail to confess me before men, sorry. That is sobering. And in Solomon's case, he begins to add some to his worship of God. And by the time a generation or two have passed, they're not even acknowledging God. It doesn't take long. So there's a promise in 21. I want to run and read it to you again. That just Remember, they're just dedicating the house. And in a couple of days, God shows up to Solomon at night. And this is part of what he says. As for this house, he's talking about the new, the brand new temple, one of the, eight, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And for this house, which was exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished. And they'll say, why has the Lord done this to this land? into this house. Right now, when they go see it, remember these people are coming from the country to worship. They've never seen anything like this. They come and see the great temple, and they are awestruck. I, I can't tell you how wonderful it was to watch this original building being built, and then when it was dedicated, how beautiful and clean and wonderful it was, and all of us had jaws dropped when we dedicated it. We were awestruck at what God had done here. But instead of being awestruck, now the people who pass by are going to be stunned. What happened? Stunned. Uh, Literally, what do they say? Well, in verse 21, they say something like, what did God do? (laughs) Why did God do this? And in verse 22, the Lord makes it really clear. This doesn't reflect badly on me. Not on God. That's what goes in your little blank there. When people walk by and see the rubble, by the way, does this happen? Yes, it happens. When people walk by and see the rubble and they say, why did God do this? The answer will be, God didn't do this. There's no one else to blame but us. Look back at 7.14 and we'll close out. I want to read it just one more time from the New American Standard. It's beautiful. And I've still got that song going in my head. Anybody else in here? Remember that one from, If my people... Okay, I mean, I'm not going to sing it to you, but Rhonda could. My people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Can I tell you something? If we start worrying right there in verse 14 about who my people are. Okay, now this is a debate. All right. Does this include the U.S.? Is this about the U.S.? And I'm going to tell you, initially it was not. I'm not sure it is now. It's certainly about Israel initially. Is it about Israel now? Can't tell you. So let's not get into debate over who the if my people are. Okay. Is it only the Nazarenes or is it only the Baptists? Or, you know, okay, no, we're not going there. If my people. So we're not going to go there. It's more important, way more important than trying to figure out who my people are here. Instead, let's focus on getting to the place where we can and do and will and always will call him my God. You will be his people if he knows you're his God. It's pretty simple. Does the Lord know he is your God? That's the issue here, isn't it? Do you want to be called by his name? (laughs) Do you want to seek his face? Oh, that's just a beautiful thought. I should have done the the word work on this and I didn't do it, but I, I just bet it's beautiful, the thought from the Hebrew about, I want to see his face. I want to see his face. I want to see his face. That's what I most want. Because if you are, and if you do, then there will be no question. You are his people because you have made him your God.